After days of fighting in Sudan, U.S. government personnel have been airlifted out of the country. Anytime you're flying about 100 knots, very close to the ground, in pitch black, there's certainly some risk there. For Sunday, April 23rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. Adrian Florido. This hour, a 16-year-old was shot for walking up to the door of the wrong house, and it's brought more scrutiny to controversial self-defense laws. What these stand-your-ground laws have done has emboldened people to engage in private law enforcement. And alt-Latinos Felix Contreras swings by to share new music you should check out. Those stories coming up after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The situation in Sudan is rapidly deteriorating. U.S. Embassy personnel in Khartoum were evacuated last night, but thousands of American citizens remain in the country. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu has more. This operation took place in an extremely precarious context. The fighting has not stopped. Even the briefest humanitarian ceasefires have failed. You know, just a three-hour ceasefire failed this week. There are currently no plans to evacuate U.S. citizens. There are an estimated 16,000 U.S. citizens registered in Sudan. But President Biden said the U.S. are providing assistance to anyone trying to leave. Many of the foreign evacuations in Sudan have been centered on Port Sudan, which is on the eastern coast facing the Red Sea. NPR's Emmanuel Ikemwotu reporting. This as the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group continue fierce fighting for control of the country. At least 400 people are dead, hundreds more are injured. Aid organizations say there's no water or electricity in the capital and food is scarce. In Mexico, a regional immigration director has been arrested in connection with the deaths of 40 migrants. NPR's Ada Peralta reports the migrants died in a fire at a detention center in Juarez. A judge said there was enough evidence to jail the head of immigration in the state of Chihuahua. Salvador Gonzalez Guerrero is expected to face multiple charges, including homicide and dereliction of duty. The migrants died at a migrant shelter in Ciudad Juarez. CCTV footage of the incident shows guards milling around while a fire takes over the detention center. They eventually leave without first unlocking the cells. Mexico's top immigration official is also facing an investigation, but his court hearing has been delayed. In Mexico, impunity is rampant. High-level government officials rarely face consequences. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Bed Bath & Beyond is planning to start closing its stores as the chain is going out of business. The home goods giant, which also owns Bye Bye Baby, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. But Bath & Beyond says for now its stores remain open, 360 flagship locations and 120 Bye Bye Baby stores. But the company does plan to close them over time. Sales are now expected to be final. The chain will stop accepting coupons on Wednesday. It plans to keep accepting gift cards through May 8th. In bankruptcy, Bed Bath & Beyond hopes to find a buyer for part or all of its business, though the chain has been running out of financial lifelines. The retailer has been struggling to pay its lenders and suppliers as it's been losing both shoppers and therefore money after a series of turnaround attempts that proved to be mistimed or ineffective. Alina Seljuk, NPR News. And those failed turnaround plans left the struggling home goods retailer short on cash. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Boston Police and the District Attorney's Office are investigating the murders of two men in Hyde Park. One victim was found shot to death inside a car on Dedham Street last night. A second man who was shot managed to get himself to the hospital but later died. Police believe the shootings are connected. Ashland teacher Trillian Clifford, trapped in Sudan with her 18-month-old daughter, is still in communication with the U.S. Embassy. The embassy is closed after several forces uh, evacuated staff overnight. Clifford's sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter of Acton, says Clifford told her this morning that the gunfire and explosions in her neighborhood have diminished. She's not hearing as many sounds outside. She's hopeful that that means perhaps there can be evacuations. But she's also incredibly upset to hear that the U.S. has evacuated all of its diplomats and families, but have left the U.S. citizens behind. Winter says her sister-in-law is getting help from her school, but is still not clear when or how she will be able to evacuate. A new report suggests Massachusetts drivers spend the third most time in the country each year in urban traffic. The Reason Foundation says the average driver spends 40.4 hours in traffic congestions annually, the average nationwide about 27 percent. The research from the libertarian think tank finds drivers in New York and New Jersey face more congestion than those in Massachusetts. Provincetown's famed Lobster Pod restaurant up for sale for $14 million. The McNulty family has run the business since the 1970s. Sports, the Red Sox leading Milwaukee 12-5 in the ninth inning. The Bruins are ahead of the Panthers 2-0 in the second period of Game 4 of their series, up two games to one. And the Celtics, up two games to one, play the Hawks in Atlanta tonight. In the forecast, showers likely, 40s overnight. Chance of showers, patchy fog early, 50s tomorrow. And still the chance of showers, 50s on Tuesday. 50 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. An exodus of foreign nationals from Sudan is currently underway from the country's capital, Khartoum. Last night, President Biden confirmed that all American government personnel and their families had been rescued from the U.S. Embassy. And while that evacuation is over, other U.S. citizens and thousands of Sudanese are trying to flee the fighting. Over 20,000 have crossed the border from the Darfur region in the west to the neighboring country of Chad in the past week. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has the latest. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Adrian. Before we turn to the bigger picture, uh, can you just tell us a bit more about the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum? Yeah, this was a mission involving special operations, Navy SEALs. It took place early morning Sudan time, and about 70 U.S. government workers, embassy personnel and their families, as well as a couple diplomats from other missions, uh, were airlifted from the embassy. And it took about an hour, all told. The choppers had flown some 800 miles from Djibouti for this operation and then back again. So it was a long day. Lieutenant General D.A. Sims, he's the director of operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he indicated that it was a dangerous mission. Anytime you're flying, you know, at 100 knots, very close to the ground in pitch black, 
there's certainly some risk there. And Adrian, it was important to the Biden administration to get this evacuation right, especially after the chaotic and deadly evacuation from Afghanistan in 2021. Yeah. So the U.S. has its embassy staff and government workers out of Sudan. Uh, What about other U.S. citizens? We understand there were about 16,000 in the country. Yes, that's right. Most are dual citizens, Sudanese Americans. The State Department released an advisory letting them know that the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum has suspended its operation and that there are no further evacuations planned in the near future because of the security situation and the airport being inoperable. The State Department warned once again, as they have for weeks, that Americans should not travel to Sudan. And they've been telling U.S. citizens already there to find shelter and stay in place. We're hearing that many U.S. citizens have joined the throngs of people trying to leave overland, but it is a highly dangerous journey. And the State Department says it's trying to get information to any Americans who are on the road about security conditions or routes that might be more dangerous. Jackie, why is uh, Sudan so strategically important to the U.S.? There are a lot of reasons. I mean, geographically, it's very important. Sudan is a crossroads between North and Sub-Saharan Africa, and also between the Middle East and Africa. It's engaged with the Horn of Africa. It's by the Nile River and has access to the Red Sea, and it's rich in natural resources. The Wagner Group has gold concessions there, and that's the Russian group that's got a lot of attention lately for its mercenary forces in Ukraine. So, Adrian, Sudan attracts the interest of many countries, and the fear is that a civil war there could pull in many players and really make the whole region unstable. Well, it's it's been more than a week since the intense fighting in Khartoum and other parts of Sudan started. Uh, are there still efforts underway to get a ceasefire in place? Yes. Yeah. The U.S. is still working on it, as is the U.N. and many other countries. But, you know, earlier ones have quickly broken and the fighting is intense. You know, as these two sides, the Sudanese army and the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, you know, duke it out to try to gain supremacy. And in the meantime, hundreds of people have died. The country's healthcare system has pretty much collapsed and there are shortages of food and water and electricity. It's a terrible situation. That's NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam. Jackie, thanks for covering this story for us. Thank you very much. A string of recent shootings have put renewed attention on the self-defense laws, often known as stand-your-ground laws. In the span of a week, 16-year-old Ralph Jarl was shot twice after ringing the doorbell of the wrong house in the state of Missouri as he was trying to pick up his siblings. In upstate New York, Kaylin Gillis was shot and killed after her boyfriend pulled into the wrong driveway as they searched for a friend's home. And in Texas, two cheerleaders were shot after one accidentally got into a car that she thought was her own. The shooters in these cases have not yet invoked their state's stand-your-ground laws, but the shootings have raised a lot of concern that they could lean on those laws to justify shooting victims who seem to have just made a simple mistake. To talk more about this, we called Ronald Sullivan Jr. He's a professor of law at Harvard University where he focuses on criminal law. When we spoke, he explained the difference between some key legal principles, including self-defense, the Castle Doctrine, and Stand Your Ground. The Stand Your Ground laws exist as an exception upon an exception to traditional self-defense. What do I mean by that? So with respect to traditional self-defense, there are five qualities that you have to have. It has to be proportionality, temporality, reasonability. You cannot be the first aggressor 
and there has to be a duty to retreat. So, so the, 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 those are the five elements of traditional self-defense. The Castle Doctrine differs from self-defense in the sense that it says there's no duty to retreat when you are in your castle, your home. Mm -hmm. So everything else is the same, except when you're in your home, you have no duty to retreat. If you reasonably are in fear of death or severe bodily injury, then you can use deadly force in your home. And then there's stand your ground laws. And then there's stand your ground laws. So you have the castle exception, and then the stand your ground law is an exception to that even. So it says, well, you don't have to have a duty to retreat not only in your house, but anywhere that you lawfully can be. So it's as though you are in your home anywhere, you know, on the streets, in the grocery store, uh, in the parking lot of a uh, convenience store, wherever you lawfully can be, you no longer have a duty to retreat. Well, in these cases over the last several days, a lot of people have been asking whether we're getting to a point where anyone can just shoot you for knocking on their door and then claim self-defense. It's hard to imagine that this is what lawmakers who've written these laws had in mind when drafting them, but is that the practical effect of what's going on here? What these stand-your-ground laws have done has emboldened people to engage in private law enforcement. It's emboldened people to engage in a form of retributive justice on their own. So it's a dangerous marriage between our gun laws, allowing these concealed carry laws and open carry laws, plus stand your ground laws, and people think that they have a right to just start shooting people. Now, of course, the problem is when you're out in a public place, other people have rights there too. And individual citizens can't be police officers deciding on, you know, who has more of a right to be in a particular place, and, and, and you just can't start shooting people. So, so that's the problem with these laws. It's really emboldened people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do if they didn't have guns at the ready and a law that seems to protect people who go and shoot folks. Well, in the case of Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old boy who walked up to the wrong house as he was trying to pick up his siblings, the prosecutor who's charged the shooter with murder said that race was a factor in the shooting. Ralph Yarl was a black boy. Is there evidence that these types of self-defense claims made under Stand Your Ground tend to be used more successfully to defend people who shoot, kill, or, or otherwise injure black people? Yes, and the empirical evidence is clear to that point, uh, but it's it stated in, in slightly a slightly different vocabulary than you use. It, it's the person who invokes Stand Your Ground. If the person who invokes Stand Your Ground is white, they have an increased chance of prevailing on the case, hmm. period. If the person is white and the victim is black, then those chances shoot up hmm. even more, which is more to the point that you made. And of course, the reverse is true. If you are uh, black and you invoke stand your ground, your chances of winning as compared to the white community is substantially lower, no matter who the victim is. But if the victim is white, those chances drop down to almost zero. Uh, so race seems to have baked its way into 
the way in which uh, prosecutors and or jurors uh, understand what constitutes uh, reasonable fear. In the case of the young man who knocked on the door, the question is going to be, the question for the jury is whether that gentleman was in reasonable fear of his safety, not subjectively fearful. Professor, you've written and spoken with great passion about the misuse of self-defense laws. After major killings like Trayvon Martin's, after the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot two people during protests in Wisconsin, uh, are there ways to ensure that these laws are not enabling uh, the killing of people engaged in mundane activities or, or just making simple mistakes? No, there absolutely is a way. Return to basic self-defense law, which has worked just fine for over 200 years in this country. If we did that, uh, we would reduce the sorts of problems we have now. One interesting data point that doesn't come out in many conversations is that homicide rates have increased, not decreased, after stand-your-ground laws have been uh, promulgated in states across the country. So it's, e- it's having the opposite effect that its proponents say that it should have. And we have a perfectly good self-defense law that works just fine. Jurors have been doing it for hundreds of years. Uh, and we would do well to return to traditional self-defense law in this country. I've been speaking with Ronald Sullivan Jr., a professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on criminal law. Professor Sullivan, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Stay with us. Up at 6. Wait, wait. Don't tell me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and... Get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR Events Newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. WBUR supporters include Native Plant Trust, welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Now open, the beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And The Huntington with Joy and Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco, now playing at the Calderwood BCA, huntingtontheater.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Sudan, U.S. Embassy personnel in Khartoum were evacuated last night, but thousands of American citizens remain in the country. President Biden says the U.S. is offering them assistance. This as the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group continue fierce fighting for control of the country that's left at least 400 people dead, hundreds more injured. Police in southeast Kenya found dozens of bodies as they investigate the activities of a religious cult. And a home goods retailer, Bed Bath & Beyond, filed for bankruptcy protection today after several last-ditch efforts to save it failed. Its stores and the Bye Bye Baby stores will remain open while it liquidates. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the University of Buffalo, working with the National Science Foundation to address a shortage of speech-language pathologists through artificial intelligence. More at buffalo.edu NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. The mass shooting at a Sweet 16 celebration last weekend rocked the small city of Dadeville, Alabama. And it was even more gut-wrenching for the students and staff of Dadeville High School. Two of the victims killed went there, as did several of the teens who were wounded. On the first day of classes after the shooting, less than half of the student body showed up. NPR's Juliana Kim spoke with the principal about how the school is coping. The principal of Dadeville High School, Chris Hand, had one word to describe this past week. Quiet. Hallways, even staff members. Just walking into the lunchroom, it was like you were in a, um, a library. You know how quiet it is. Hand says for the first few days of class, about half of students showed up. Some were in the hospital recovering from the attack. Some were grieving. Others were afraid to come to school because the shooters were still at large. Dadeville High is less than a mile from the dance studio where a sophomore from the school was celebrating her 16th birthday. Gunfire erupted there, killing four people and wounding 32 others, most of whom were teenagers. Among those killed were Dadeville High seniors Phil Dodell and Sean Kivia Nicole Smith. Han says Smith was known for being friends with everyone, and she was also a role model. I noticed this. A lot of the younger ones, the 7th, 8th, and ninth, they really looked up to her because a lot of them had played softball with her. Dodell was also popular, so much so he won the title Mr. Dadeville High School at homecoming. But what Han remembers most, especially now, is that Dodell was one of the few students who would wave to him at the cafeteria. He smiled and he waved every single day. And then I would walk by the table. He's like, Miss Han, how are you today? I mean, that's just him every day. Arrests began on Wednesday, four days after the attack. In total, six people were charged with reckless murder in connection to the shooting. Police haven't disclosed any information about a motive. Over the past week, mental health counselors, pastors, and even therapy dogs visited Dadeville High to offer their support. Very little teaching or schoolwork went on. Han hasn't addressed the school formally about what happened. He admits he hasn't found the right words. But he realized also, maybe that's not what some students need like a senior who ran track and field alongside Dodell and Smith. He didn't say a word, but he just came up to me. I was in my office and just hugged me, and that was it. Han says his goal is to slowly return to some normalcy, but he emphasized it'll take a really long time. Funerals have only just begun for the four victims. Han says Dodell's service will actually be held at school at the request of his mother. Juliana Kim, NPR News. On many college campuses, the new, more restrictive legal landscape around abortion has also created confusion and sometimes fear about accessing other kinds of reproductive care, birth control, pregnancy tests, Plan B. 
This has been very evident in Texas, where an abortion ban took effect right after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. On the campus of Texas A&M, a student volunteer group that provides a lot of these reproductive care services has seen its membership plummet, while an anti-abortion rights group on campus has gained momentum and financial support. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. School pride oozes from the athletic posters that dominate Namisha Srikanth's dorm room. Three foam fingers that say, Go Aggies, the school's mascot, are stacked next to her bed. So A&M, my dad is an Aggie. He came here for his master's. He immigrated from India, did his master's in civil engineering. And ever since I was nine months old, I've been coming to A&M every year. So I was born and bled maroon. But these days, among Srikanth's school memorabilia and monogrammed pillows are boxes of condoms, lube, pregnancy tests, and plan B in what she calls her pharmacy, tucked under her bed. So I have a box of condoms. Then I have this miscellaneous box where I have pads, tampons, pregnancy tests, um, emergency contraception fact sheet. And then this big box, I have plan B. That is my comprehensive pharmacy. Srikanth is the president of Free Aggies, Feminists for Reproductive Equity and Education at Texas A&M, about two hours east of Austin. They run a program that provides incognito access to emergency contraception, even though the drop-off service started due to COVID, when the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last summer, the group decided to keep it up for added privacy for students. These products are in a brown paper bag, so it just looks like a lunch sack you would take to school. Or it's something small enough you can just put inside a bag or a backpack, and nobody will know until you go home and then you can take it out. The demand is high. The group makes at least one run per day, and the program has served hundreds of students since its inception in 2020. But it's all coming to an end this semester due to lack of involvement. When Namisha joined Free Aggies, there were dozens of active members. But then students just stopped showing up. So what what do the numbers look like now? Honestly, these days, it's just the four of us. Mm-hmm. Shirkanth says now there's an air of risk around reproductive health products, even though everything they pass out is completely legal. They do pass-offs in public to keep both sides safe, and the anonymity is what makes the service appealing to students. Definitely going inside the student health center and walking to that pharmacy, picking it up, that's definitely a little bit more risky for some students. Kimberly Harris, a professor of constitutional law at Texas Tech University, says the atmosphere of secrecy permeates colleges all over the state. The political climate is such that it is such a controversial topic. It is so highly charged that that'll make some people go, I don't want to be involved with that at all, whatever their personal views are. She's heard from her students in the months since Roe v. Wade was overturned and the Texas abortion ban took hold. Student behavior has changed significantly. Some students are stocking up on Plan B and hoarding birth control. And she says there's a feeling that this is just the beginning. I think everyone in the country needs to pay attention to Texas, whether you live in Alabama or California. What happens in Texas might be coming to you. On the other side of the debate, pro-life Aggies is thriving. It's the largest group of its kind on campus, with more than a thousand people on their email list. And students pack their weekly meetings to hear guest speakers from around the country. They give out scholarships for student parents, put on large-scale displays around campus, and, of course, hand out flyers in the student center. 
We'll have resources and pamphlets um, with educational topics, um, like maybe field development. Um, and also we have pamphlets for our pregnancy resource centers um, and just everything like that on our table. Grace Howitt is the president and says her group has done its best to keep the debate with abortion rights advocates civil and respectful. We've really had to make sure um, that we continue to be very kind towards them and understanding and that we meet them where they are um, and that mm-hmm. we're able to reassure them that, you know, we do care about women um, as well as children and, and reassure them that, um, you know, our movement's here to protect both. Salem Smith, one of the last members of Free Aggies, says that nevertheless, the Supreme Court ruling has made it tough for their small abortion rights group and for students who may need help or counseling. In larger organizations that have always been bigger and had this momentum, it's kind of easier because you're one in a crowd. Mm-hmm. But sometimes with these smaller organizations, it can be scary. Mm-hmm. It can be scary, especially with some of the incidents we've had in the past like pushback while handing out flyers, friction with the administration, and even one of the former student leaders receiving harassing phone calls. So as the remaining few members of their group graduate, they'll have to wait and see if a new generation of Aggies takes up their fight. The spirit will live on, Mm -hmm. even if it's not under the same name, even if it's not run by the same people. For now, though, their efforts will remain in the background. This past week, pro-life Aggies held a big rally on campus called Memorial of the Innocents that featured over 1,000 crosses, each representing two abortions in the U.S. every day. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, College Station, Texas. We wanted to take a moment to talk about media consolidation in America and the impact it's having on local news coverage across the country. At the end of 2019, Gannett, America's largest newspaper company, merged with Gatehouse Media. Since then, Gannett has closed or sold hundreds of papers and slashed staff by more than half, and that's projected to continue. Joshua Benton has been writing about this for the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and he joins me now. Welcome. Good to be with you. Joshua, Gannett had 25,000 employees at the end of 2019, and uh, less than four years later, it has just over 11,000. It slashed staff by more than half. I mean, newspaper revenue has been steadily declining over that time, but not by that much, not at that rate. So what's going on here? The Gannett that we have now is the result of the merger of two very large companies. The idea was an individual newspaper might struggle on its own, but if you buy enough of them, uh, you can extract as much of the, the cost of producing the newspaper from the local community as possible. You cut down on print days, you have the page layout and, and editing done elsewhere. The thought was you could achieve these economies of scale and make a profitable business. The problem is, as part of the merger, uh, Gannett took on a lot of debt, and they have to pay off that debt. So they need revenue, and the way that they have been doing that is by cutting costs uh, to the bone. That means cutting staff and cutting the quality of their newspapers. I guess it goes without saying that print circulation of newspapers has plummeted in recent years. It's been on the decline for decades, actually. Uh, And today, most people get their news online. Is it just the case that these Gannett newspapers aren't managing to get people who used to subscribe to their print paper to subscribe to their digital product instead? Yeah, newspapers have generally given up on the idea of creating new print readers. They're not really making new print readers anymore. So the idea has been to shift to digital and and Gannett claims some some degree of success in doing that. But even when that does happen, uh, newspapers generally make significantly less money off of a digital subscriber than they do from a print subscriber. 
Um, the other problem is that there are lots of other free alternatives for a lot of local news and information, and uh, people will be happy to consume those without bothering to subscribe to the local daily. You write in the Neiman Journalism Lab that uh, in the last few years, Gannett had 563 newspapers and today has fewer than 400. Uh, many of these are newspapers that are serving smaller cities and towns. So what does it mean for these communities when their newspapers are sold or closed, or even if they're just gutted of staff? Yeah, Gannett CEO Mike Reed has said that uh, he sees the f- in the future the company will be focusing on its larger newspapers in communities like Phoenix and, and Indianapolis. But Gannett owns a lot of very small newspapers, uh, a lot of weekly newspapers, a lot of very small daily newspapers. Those larger weeklies and smaller dailies are in a really tough position economically. It's very difficult to manage the cost uh, while emphasizing digital subscriptions and getting enough of them to, to make things work out. There are also communities where there often isn't as much of an alternative in terms of a local television station or a local digital news outlet that's covering the area. So in a lot of communities, there, there just aren't a lot of options, and uh, these places will become more like a news desert. You know, uh, one newspaper in Eugene, Oregon, the Register Guard, was uh, locally owned by a family in Eugene until 2018 when it sold to Gatehouse, and which was then merged into Gannett. And in that time, the, the newsroom has gone from uh, over 40 employees to what on its current staff listing is seven uh, it's really hard to run a robust newsroom when you have seven people working in your newsroom. At the end of the day, Gannett is a business. Most newspapers are businesses with a mission to inform the public, yes, but also driven by profit motive. So do you see any solutions here for the uh, local communities that are being left behind in these sort of information deserts? I think it is very difficult to manage the transition from a print daily to an effective digital news outlet. It's often much easier to start from scratch. It's not happening everywhere, but there are communities across the country where smart digital outlets are uh, growing to the point where in some cases they have bigger newsrooms than the local daily newspaper does. It is possible, but it's a challenge. What do you see in the future of local news? I see a lot more uncovered city council meetings. I see a lot more uh, corruption that uh, doesn't get noticed. I see a lot more uninformed voters. More people who take their cues for how they view their government from national media and the politicized uh, world there as opposed to their local government. There, there certainly are bright spots. There are green shoots going up, but the challenge is just very difficult. I've been speaking with Joshua Benton. He's a senior writer at the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard University. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A video game officially licensed by Major League Baseball has an all-new mode featuring players from the Negro National League. It's a first for a gaming franchise that originated in the 1990s. NPR's Jamal Michel reports. My friends know what time it is when I step up to the plate in MLB The Show 23. Now it's the shortstop, Jackie Robinson. Robinson's ability to read a pitch is really what made his batting average so legendary. Swing and a hard hit liner up the middle to base hit. So a man aboard now. With one so when we hop online to play, I never leave him out of my rotation. My cousin, though, he's definitely a Satchel Page stand. The pitch. 
Leg kicks like satchels can really mess with the hitter's timing, and if you can get past that, well, you still got to hit some of the best stuff any pitcher's ever had. Mainly because of his 105-mile-an-hour b-ball, as Page called it. Not to mention his hella unorthodox windup. MLB The Show spotlights players like Page and Robinson in a new feature called Storylines, the Negro Leagues. The single-player mode reconstructs moments from the lives of legendary black players that couldn't compete in the majors until Jackie Robinson broke that barrier in 1947. And while some Negro League players showed up in past games, the expanded roster and all-new mode came from a partnership with the Negro League's Baseball Museum. Each chapter begins with some historical context presented by museum president Bob Kendrick. So if the Monarchs have their full roster intact, Jackie Robinson never gets invited to try out. And how would history have been altered? Kendrick was blown away by the reception storylines got. In fact, he told me it came up during a tour he recently led. As I typically do when I'm telling Satchel's story, he had names for his pitches. Yeah. And so I get to his famous b-ball and I, and I raised the question, do you know why he called it the b-ball? And a young kid, a young white kid, is standing there with his father and he looks at me, he said, because it be where he wanted to be when he wanted to be there. <laughs> You've been playing the show in his policy. Yes, he has been listening to you and he has been paying attention. It's not all celebration, of course. Rather than gloss over the ugly side of the game, Kendrick says it's important to remember the circumstances that created the need for the Negro League in the first place. Jim Crow, segregation a horrible chapter in this country's history. But the story of the Negro Leagues themselves, there's nothing sorrowful or sad about that story because that is that story of what you do when you're faced with this kind of adversity. Mm -hmm. You rise mm -hmm. above. MLB The Show 23's newest mode is a gift for gamers who've been waiting to see their favorite baseball legends finally get their roses. Bob Kendrick has his own dreams about taking to the field as well. Well, you know, I wanted to be in the middle of action, so I always wanted to be a pitcher. I wanted, so, you know, I wanted to be right there in it, kind of controlling yeah. the game from that perspective. So, yeah, that would be the role. Now, I probably couldn't break a pane of glass, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. K throwing Ks. That's, <laughs> that's what they're going to call you. <laughs> Kendrick may not be lacing up anytime soon. But thanks to MLB The Show 23, he can still relive the glory days of some of baseball's legends he helped bring to life. From the 1956 World Series... Robinson after a foul and a ball... Flashes ...to a video game in 2023. Here's a swing and a drive left field and he knew it. Jamal Michelle, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. Stay with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily 
to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. Well, the soggy weather is going to continue for a while. Showers likely overnight with temperatures in the 40s, chance of showers, some patchy fog early tomorrow, temps tomorrow in the 50s, and looking ahead to Tuesday again, the chance of showers with temperatures in the 50s. Right now in Boston, it is light rain and 51 degrees. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Mexico, a regional immigration director has been arrested in connection with the deaths of 40 migrants who died in a fire at a detention center in Juarez. CCTV footage shows guards milling around while a fire takes over the detention center and then they leave without first unlocking the cells. Comcast says the CEO of NBC Universal, Jeff Schell, is stepping down because of a, quote, inappropriate relationship with a woman at the company. Comcast says the decision to part ways with him was mutual. And at the weekend box office, the Super Mario Brothers movie took the top spot for the third weekend in a row with an estimated $58 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. The NBA playoffs are underway, and players are impressing on the court, but also off of it, with what they wear as they show up to their games, expressing their backgrounds and their cultural roots in ways they weren't always allowed to. NPR's Pilar Galvan reports. Lance Fresh knows how to dress. He is the NBA style guru. Hailing from Brooklyn, New York, he grew up rocking dunks and loving basketball. From his work on Project One Way to Bleacher Report, he lays it all out. We got to talk about what the guys are wearing coming to the game and sneakers and things like that. And I learned that, you know, a lot of the players and athletes, they, that's what they really want to talk about. They didn't want to talk about them having a bad game or shooting two for ten. Players didn't always have that swag, that freedom to express themselves through their fits. In 2005, the NBA instituted a dress code. Players were required to dress in business or conservative attire before and after games. No change, shorts, or t-shirts. Some players, like Jason Richardson, called the code racist. Commissioner David Stern wanted to bring back the Walt Clyde Frazier look, known for stunning in super fly suits. Then enters Allen Iverson with his cornrows and oversized shorts. Lance Fresh. He's the guy who single-handedly challenged it, and they literally had to create the dress code because of him. Iverson's looks were edgier, baggier, and more akin to hip-hop culture, like Dennis Rodman before him. And Iverson wasn't having it. He paid fines for code violations. Eventually, the dress code dissipated. Now you see it, not just clothes, just like style, swag, just braids, tattoos, 
bands. Like, that was all him, and that's still here. The intersection of basketball and fashion pushes the cultural needle. A lot of people draw their inspirations and identities from them, their forms of expression. Somebody might not be in the NBA or play basketball, but, like, when you get fly and you put on clothes, people are going to rock with you just because they have that love for fashion. That's Josh Christopher a 21-year-old player for the Houston Rockets. He grew up rocking Vans, Kobe's on concrete, cut-off sweats, white tees, and baby shorts. Cali vibes through and through. I just always found clothes to be as like a way to express myself. You have fashion weeks you can go to, and it's just a different way to network and connect, I mean, on like a business scale. You can't talk about the business of fashion in the NBA without recognizing the kicks, especially the legacy of Jordans the most pervasive sneaker on and off the court. Christopher is a Jordan brand athlete. For me and my deal and for the brand was for me to be myself, but at the same time, throw some J's on it with it too. Keep the J's alive. But players have also built their own brands. Christopher started working on his personal brand in high school when he wasn't allowed to profit off his image as an athlete. This was before the NIL policy. Other brands like Russell Westbrook's Honor the Gift are fueled by aspiration and invested in their communities. Fresh sees Westbrook as a trailblazer. The profits from some Honor the Gift drops go towards supporting local causes. Their latest collection draws inspiration for Black history and features modern-day Black equestrians, the Compton Cowboys. The attention to detail and the dedication to his neighborhood, to where he comes from in L.A., I think that's dope, and I think, you know, if you can still hold on to some of that piece of home like and take that with you in fashion, I think that's amazing. Athletes like Josh Christopher feel that responsibility. From sneakers to suits, whether it's in the arena tunnel or on the runway, players are putting it on not only for themselves, but... I feel like we should, like, make it our duty as athletes to push our peoples forward for their communities. Pilar Galvan, NPR News. In the new Netflix series, The Diplomat, Carrie Russell plays Kate Weiler, a career foreign service officer who reluctantly agrees to serve as the American ambassador to the United Kingdom after dozens of British sailors are killed in an attack on an aircraft carrier. It's a last-minute switch from the post she was already packing for and eagerly anticipating. Here she is learning of her new assignment from the president and his chief of staff. Sorry, I'm going to Kabul. We'll take care of that. I realize London has a ceremonial component to it, and you were ready to do more substantive work in Kabul. I'm hoping to save a shred of what we spent 2,400 American lives building. It feels substantive. Billy. I'm just saying it's... Hard to imagine. She can't imagine it. The president is asking you to serve as ambassador to the United Kingdom. It is an honor and a privilege. That's more like it. Once in London, the new ambassador has to avert an international crisis while maneuvering around her fellow diplomat husband, played by Rufus Sewell. The Diplomat is written and produced by Deborah Kahn. She's known for her work on The West Wing, Grey's Anatomy, and Homeland. And she's here now. Deborah Kahn, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. You have worked on a lot of political dramas and shows exploring international crises. What made you say, okay, now I want to do a show about a diplomat working behind the scenes to keep Britain and the U.S. from starting a war? 
When I was working on Homeland, we had the pleasure of having a lot of experts from different fields come in during our research phase. And one of them was an ambassador named Beth Jones who came in and she started talking and two minutes into the conversation, it becomes clear that what she's done during the course of her career would not at all be out of place in an action movie. And it occurred to me that we have ambassadors in crisis zones all over the world doing things that we, for the most part, never hear about. If they're doing their job right, it never reaches our radar screen. But they are deeply involved in bringing wars to an end or stopping them before they start. High stakes, high intensity stuff that takes a tremendous amount of knowledge, experience, and bravery. Part of the reason that Kate has been asked in your show to serve as the ambassador to the UK is because uh, the president is sort of casting around for a new vice president, and this post serves as a, as a testing ground. But Kate, who has always been a career diplomat and not a political appointee, she hates the limelight, and uh, she makes that really clear in this scene where her aide and her husband are prepping her for a photo op. You need to lean into the Cinderella thing. I am not Cinderella. I'm here for 30 funerals. The only T-length garment I packed is a burqa. I have a black suit, and I have another black suit. And I'm not getting dressed by someone named Pippa so a women's magazine can ask who I'm wearing and what advice I have for little girls. Why did you want Kate to be someone who is not power-hungry and ego-driven, who, who shies away from attention? I've always been interested in the dynamic of who we choose as leaders, particularly national leadership, and the either crack or gulf between what we think we're looking for and what we actually want in the job. So I wanted to kind of take a closer look on what it means to try to close that gap, or do we really want to close it? Is it something that we can perhaps move on from our focus on which candidate drinks which beer and which situation, and refocus ourselves on which one can really understand policy on a granular level and reduce ultimately a lot of complexity to a decision that has to get made in a timely fashion. A lot of the show centers on uh, the relationship between Kate and her husband, Hal, who is also a career diplomat like her, but has a very different style. He is charismatic. He likes to call the shots. He's a little bit of a glad handler. But in this new chapter for the couple in the UK, he has got to take the back seat. I want to play a clip from the first episode where the two are disagreeing on how Kate should handle a call with the uh, British Prime Minister. What are you going to say to him, Prime Minister? I am a listener on the call. That is like the opposite of ass in the saddle, Kate. More than once, I've told you, when you land in a new post, there is some wisdom in spending a week or a month with your mouth shut listening. Yeah, well, I never did it because I thought it was a dumb idea. Rayburn's going to talk about NATO, but you're here to patch things up with the Brits, so you got to keep the focus tight. I'm not doing this the way you would. Well, that's fine. Just don't do it wrong. I was wondering if, as you developed this relationship for the screen, if you spoke with a lot of real-life diplomatic couples who had gone through these kinds of experiences. I did. This was a dynamic that it was a marital dynamic that I was interested in because I see it a lot in my own industry. People who meet on the job and fall in love 
sort of in the whirlwind of doing something that they love. And that kind of creates its own exponential reaction, which is extremely exciting and romantic. And then creates a situation where 10 years down the road, you are married to somebody who is sometimes your collaborator and sometimes your competitor. Well, they're dynamics that you explore so, so compellingly in your new show. Deborah Kahn, she is the showrunner and creator of the new series, The Diplomat, which is streaming on Netflix now. Deborah Kahn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Adrian. It was a pleasure to talk with you. We are smack in the middle of spring. And for our friends at NPR's Alt Latino podcast, that means it is time for some spring cleaning. Alt Latino host Felix Contreras has been sorting through a lot of music in his digital mailbox, and he's here to share some of the cool stuff he's been finding in there. Welcome, Felix. Uh, we jumped right into the music. What are we listening to? We're listening to everyone's favorite flamenco duo, Rodrigo y Gabriela. Now, they have a new record out. It's called Between Thoughts and a New World, and it's quite a departure for them because for roughly the last 10 years, they have built a strong base of super fans with their pyrotechnic displays of guitar chops leaning heavily into flamenco. You know, they started as, they started music listening to metal, right? And all those 16th notes, they just transferred over to the whole flamenco thing. Mm -hmm. But for this, Rodrigo Sanchez is playing electric guitar. And they also have some electronic keyboard stuff going on. We're listening to a track called Descending to Nowhere. Felix, you mentioned that uh, Rodrigo and Gabriela uh, built their career and their sound on acoustic guitar. I remember seeing them at the Hollywood Bowl like more than 10 years ago, and that was sort of the, the bread and butter. Uh, do you think that fans will be put off by the electric instruments that they're playing with now? You know, I saw them a few years ago, and Rodrigo put on electric guitar, and nobody said a word, man. In fact, they huh. ate it up. I mean, I think it just adds another layer to what they do. And it says everything about who they are. I mean, I've been a fan from the beginning. Their first record came out in the early 2000s, and you get a sense of genuineness from them through their music and who they are, these two individuals. And I think it's because, it's the Felix theory, one of many, I think it's because of the acoustic guitars that have been their trademark. There is a direct connection between an artist and an audience when there's only an acoustic guitar standing between them. Like, think of all the great folk musicians from the 70s who changed the world with their acoustic guitars. And then also think about the tradition of the trio, the mm -hmm. trio, right? In Spanish language music, three-part vocal harmonies, songs about being in and out of love with acoustic guitars. It's my own personal theory, but I think the warmth of the wood creates an automatic, intimate relationship, and that's what Rodrigo and Gabriela do. Uh, and the electric instruments on the new album don't take away from that at all, you think? Not to my ear, but it adds another layer of depth and exploration. It just makes their music even more fun. All right, Felix. Well, next up, that you uh, brought in a band that does not have what we would call a, a huge profile, but people who like them really, really dig them. First, let's hear some music, and then we'll talk about them. The Mars Volta. That's the name of the band. It's more of a collective than a band, but the mastermind behind them from their beginning in the early 2000s is guitarist and composer Omar Rodriguez Lopez. Now, together with vocalist Cedric Bixler Savala, you know, they've charted a singular path through music, specifically through rock. 
And as you said, their fans get their message loud and clear. They're, they've been devotedly following them through their temporary hiatuses at different points, or they take breaks so Omar Rodriguez Lopez can do his own prolific solo work. This new album is a track-by-track acoustic reworking of the album that they released in 2022, which was just called The Mars Volta. The new album is called Que Dios Te Maldiga Mi Corazón, which means May God Curse You, My Heart. This track in particular starts with Afro-Cuban rhythms. It starts with the slow mambo, and then they move on to a Santeria-inspired 6-8 beat. Check this out. Then they settle on a rhythm called Afro. Other bands have done this, but you know, when you're known for adventurous rock, these rhythms open up new ways to appreciate the band, the music, the lyrics, the singing, everything about it. So good. What what attracts you to this band, Felix? Omar Rodriguez Lopez, bro. You know, there are some musicians who just see the world in ways that we don't. And I always consider them, I call them visionaries, and Omar is one of them. I mean, he hears music through a rock filter, through an experimental filter, and he's collaborated with all kinds of musicians like the rapper Residente from Calle 13. I saw them perform together once in Austin. It was an amazing mix of hip-hop and guitar shredding, all of his stuff. It's fun to follow his musical path. It's like following breadcrumbs through his mind. It's really cool. It's Puerto Rican, raised in Texas, probably lots there of There you go, man. There, there yeah. you go. What track should we uh, uh, hear to close us out today, Felix? They have a real cool thing called Tourmaline. Check it out. If I had to find some strength to describe it, of well, Felix Contreras, host of NPR's music podcast, Alt Latino, which is a weekly look at what's cool in their world of Latino music and culture. Felix, thanks so much for coming by. It's been a blast, man. Hey, man, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again, bro.